Speak, God, to our hearts, for we, your servants, are listening. Speak, Lord, to our hearts, for we, your servants, are listening. Pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So good to see each and every one of you. I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning as we celebrate the first Sunday of Advent. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1. As we focus our attention upon a a different character of the manger scene each Sunday of Advent. Our focus will be on Joseph this morning. I'm thinking about manger scenes and thinking about this week of Thanksgiving where people are putting out Christmas decorations. It seems to me, maybe it's just me, but there's been a, a greater rush to Christmas this year, and, and I would say rightfully so. Uh, imagine in the sanctuary there, there are people that fall on different sides of sort of a, a, a recent debate. Do you put up your Christmas decorations before Thanksgiving or only after Thanksgiving? What's the line of demarcation for, for you? For the Eldridge family, we have had, at least in, with our kids, we've sort of had a, a rule that nothing Christmas goes up until after Thanksgiving. No Christmas music that we're going to listen to. We're not going to watch Christmas movies. We're not going to decorate and pull out all the decorations from the attic and decorate the trees until after Thanksgiving, except for this year. I'm like literally eating those words this year, probably five days before Thanksgiving. We're getting all of our Christmas decorations out of the attic, putting up the trees in the house. We have already, before Thanksgiving, watched two Christmas classic movies, one being Will Ferrell in Elf. I mean, so we are, we are breaking all kinds of, of rules at our house. A couple of days before Thanksgiving, we were listening to Christmas music. I'm just eating my words. My boys have reminded me throughout this time, Dad, I thought we never were going to do this, and you're doing this. And they're, they're, they've become like superly righteous, as that, you know, how these teenagers can be about the atrocity of what's going. But we needed to get to Advent. We needed to get to Christmas. I've never been tempted to buy every blow-up Christmas decoration at Lowe's until this year. I I just want to put up all the lights. It's been such a dark season. It was right for us to to show a little bit of contrast as we point to the light and the hope of, of, of what the Advent season means. And it is a reminder in these dark days where, where disunity and sickness and disease have been at the forefront of all of our families, the forefront of all of our culture and attention, that Advent reminds us that hope has come. And the hope of Advent is a reminder to us that true hope is not found in political solutions solely. It is not found in economic solutions solely. It's not found in educational solutions solely. But it is found in the infinite Son of God who comes to this earth, lives a perfect life, dies a sacrificial death, is raised on the third day. And when you put your faith in Him, you and me, we can become sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is the story that we celebrated Advent. So, so light up the decorations. Let's, let's, let's shout from the rooftops, joy to the world. The Lord has come. I'm reminded each year as we pull out manger scenes at our house, 
They all have stories. Some of them have been as close that we have to family heirlooms that have been passed down. Some of the manger scenes that we have have been, we've gotten them on mission trips and brought them back. Each of them has sort of a story. And what we want to do during Advent is to focus in some of the characters in those traditional Advent scenes. And this morning, I want us to think about Joseph and his life and what Joseph helps us understand about us following Jesus this year, this Advent. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, reads, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As we're looking in these close-up shots of our manger scenes here, some of the things that we need to do in this Advent series is just to be reminded of of what is sort of folklore in our mind of that original manger scene and what actually happened. Who was Joseph? What did Joseph do? Uh, What does it mean for Joseph and Mary to be betrothed and pledged to one another? So so let's just clear out some of the ground here. Who was Joseph? Joseph. Matthew chapter 13 tells us Joseph was a, in our English version, starting back in the King James Version, we translate that original Greek word that was a profession. We translate it as carpenter. It's not helpful for us to think of carpenter in a 20th century, 21st century. Joseph's not framing houses. Uh, Joseph doesn't have two by fours here. He's not building bird houses with Jesus on weekend projects. About three miles outside of Nazareth is this huge rock quarry, stone quarry. And so the majority of Joseph's profession would have been as a stone mason. Uh, it helps us, actually, when we know this, because we can, we can read Luke chapter 20, where it says the stone that the builders rejected has become now what? Our cornerstone. So Joseph is a man that knows what it is to, to work a hard day. He knows what it is to toll. He knows what it is to ache in his back and in his knees. He knows what it is to, to earn from the sweat of his brow a living. Now, God could have, in his infinite wisdom, made Joseph a rabbi, an attorney, not an attorney, but a lawyer in that first century day, a, a scribe, someone with position, pedigree, power. None of that with Joseph. Joseph is blue collar in every way. He's a commoner in every way. There's nothing that is special to designate Joseph. But what we know about Joseph is he is a righteous man. Now, how do we know this? Well, it's connected to their engagement. Now, some of that we've got to unlearn. We, we think and we know Joseph is young, Mary's young. Tradition tells us in the history of that ancient Near Eastern day, most men would have been married between 18 to 20. Most women in that culture would have been married between 12 and 14. Don't superimpose our ages upon them. I mean, this is, this is 2,000 years of cultural divide and difference here. Joseph is not a, a freshman at Sanford. That isn't your correlation. Uh, Mary is not a, in the back row of a geometry class uh, writing notes to her friends. That, that is not the, the image that we should have here. I mean, they're much more mature than that same age would be within our culture here. There's three periods of an engagement that are helpful for us to understand Joseph and Mary. The first was just the engagement. 
Not a Romeo and Juliet story here. Their eyes don't meet and, and under the starlit sky with the music playing here. Most likely Joseph and Mary didn't know each other. Most likely it was an arranged marriage decided by, by parents uh, long before they could even speak here. So Joseph and Mary most likely had very little personal contact with each other before they're engaged to be married. It was a cultural tradition of that day. The second phase of a marriage was not just the engagement, but the betrothal period, the pledging period. To be betrothed to someone was a year-long period. It's before you consummate the marriage. It's where you live together. But for that year, post the engagement, you would be called husband and wife. It was the second period of that, of that process before you were to be married. The only way you could break this covenant was a divorce paper. And so that helps us to be able to understand what's going on with Joseph and Mary. They're in that second phase prior to their marriage here when Mary comes to him with this unthinkable news. And of course he doesn't believe her. Most likely he hardly knows her. And so Mary is coming and saying this unbelievable news of a pregnancy from the source of the Holy Spirit himself. And so it is not surprising to us, verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph says, my only option is to divorce her. But notice in Matthew's gospel that he is going to do this as a righteous man. He is going to do this in a way that the scripture tells us is quietly. Now this gives us some insight into Joseph. It gives us some insight into his righteous living here. And it is a way that intersects your life and my life because Joseph reminds us of a principle that I want you to hold on to this morning. And that is that kindness matters when life doesn't go as planned. That your kindness and my kindness that we learn from Joseph, it matters. It especially matters in your life and my life when life doesn't go as we have it planned. Joseph is a righteous man because he decides he's going to divorce her quietly. Now, what's righteous about her, him divorcing her? Well, you need to understand he has no, no choice in this. Roman law would have, would have said of him not divorcing her, he would not be able to, to work after this. He, he would have been an outcast, really excommunicated from, from that day under Roman law, under Jewish law, the Mosaic law. He has to divorce her because of her, in his mind, infidelity, which any person would have thought in that same context. The, the Mosaic law goes another step forward, uh, further and says, not only do you divorce her, but you can pick up a stone and you can cast it and you can be the pronouncement of her own death. Deuteronomy chapter 22. So the stakes are sky high here. Uh, this, is, this is Hester Prynne, Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne, small town scandal in every way here. The stakes are sky. And Joseph, he he chooses a middle way. He he is going to divorce her, but he is going to do it in a way that honors her even when he's heartbroken. And even when he's angry, even when he's doubting, he has questions, he has hurt, he has confusion, he has embarrassment. But even in this moment, he says, I'm going to do what I think is best for Mary here. 
going to divorce her, but I'm going to do it quietly. Which in, in translation, he's saying, I'm not going to harm her. I'm not going to abuse her. I'm not going to shame her. I'm not going to ridicule her. I'm not going to, as, as many people would have wanted to do, is to, to get back at her or demean her. But no, he shows her respect, dignity. He honors her worth. And he's ultimately saying, I want to protect her in this place. Now, all of this, it's easy for us to forget this. All of this is before the angel of the Lord gives Joseph divine clarification. So the angel of the Lord is going to intervene and say, oh yeah, by the way, what Mary is telling you, it actually is true. Joseph decides all of this before he gets that divine clarification, before he gets the understanding from the angel of the Lord. And this This, for us as Christians that have the Spirit of God residing in us, it is a principle that intersects your life and my life because Joseph becomes an illustration. He becomes an illustration of the distinctiveness of a life that has the Spirit of God leading us and guiding us. Joseph displays gentleness instead of bitterness. He displays self-control instead of outrage. He displays goodness instead of spite. All of these things would have been natural reactions for Joseph, but Joseph chooses the path of kindness. And this is his righteousness. This is a display of his love for God, a platform on display for everyone to see that this is a man who is following God. And I want you to hear that when we choose the path of kindness, especially when life doesn't go as it is planned on, on, on our calendar, in our way, when we choose the path of con- uh, kindness, it is countercultural in every way. It is in this uh, stark relief oftentimes to the impulses we have, the natural reactions that we have, when we choose a path of kindness, even in difficult times, it it shines a light upon the source of that kindness. And oftentimes, your displays of kindness, my displays of kindness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, become a platform for us to be able to tell the good news of the source of our kindness. Kindness is contagious, especially in a world that is so sparse with kindness. I read just recently of a 27-year-old. Her name is Ashley Johnson. She goes to uh, Target. She buys a book that she had been eyeing. She gets it home. She begins to read it. Out falls a $5 bill. Turns the page. The next thing that happens is a note, a letter that was placed in the back of that book, along with that $5 bill that falls out on her lap. She opens it up, and it reads this way. To the person who buys this book, I'm having a tough day. I thought I maybe I could brighten someone else's day with this little surprise. So go buy a coffee, a donut, or a face mask. Practice some self-care today. Remember that you are loved, you are amazing, you are strong. Lisa. So Ashley posts this to her, her Twitter feed. It goes viral. Local news reporters interview her. And under her Twitter feed, under this note here, just a simple act. bill, a person in the midst of not having a good day, writes this note, puts it in there. It's just one response after the next response of the way that kindness is contagious. I mean, random people that go to the grocery store, see this letter, and say, I'm going to buy the person's groceries in front of me here. 
A story of families altering their family plans, and instead of going to do this and do that, they, they go and they volunteer in a rescue mission, and, and God begins to do some work in their children's lives as they see some of the needs that are around them, and, and, and big examples of this too. Mom and a dad who bury their 19-year-old daughter, and in the midst of seeing this little note, it seems so far removed from the grief and the tears that they're experiencing. But there was something about this little note that inspires them to, to begin this movement in the honor of, their, of their, their daughter and the kindness that she displayed throughout her life. And in the midst of the tragedy, that little note, it, it just multiplies exponentially. And that is true. Kindness is contagious. It is contagious in your church. It is contagious in your home. It is contagious in your workplace. But also, bitterness is contagious. Harshness is contagious. One of the things I've just realized, just about life as as a pastor, is that our, our default so often is to assume the worst in people. Sometimes our default, because we're fallen human beings, is to always interpret loved ones' actions, friends, coworkers at times, under the worst umbrella. We oftentimes don't cut people slack. And here is Joseph, hearing his betrothed wife say to him this unfathomable alibi. And in this moment, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't embarrass her, but he says, I'm going to try to show her kindness in the midst of these unimaginable circumstances that in this moment he thinks he's going through. And I just want to remind you, we don't know the half of it. We don't know the half of it of what people that you interact with each and every day are going through behind the scenes. Joseph, he surely didn't with Mary. And I can assure you, you don't with that friend, that waitress, the person you're going through the drive-thru, the cashier. And I, I would just remind you this week that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to, to, to choose kindness and gentleness and peace. And that, my friends, will be contagious as you, through the Spirit of God, are led by Him to those people and to those individuals that are going through things that are unimaginable, that don't show up on their forehead as you're interacting with them. And Joseph shows us a way of kindness. But that's not the only thing that Joseph shows us. He shows us that kindness matters even when life doesn't go our way. But he also shows us something about obedience. One of the powerful illustrations of Joseph's life here, obedience isn't optional even when life doesn't go as planned. Read with me in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, so what does he do? He's considering what he thinks to be the infidelity of Mary here. He's thinking of the embarrassment, how he's going to answer the questions of all these people. He's thinking about how he can protect her in the midst of this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Nobody's going to understand that. 
But don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he's going to write off family by his decision. He's going to write off economic opportunities through this decision here. It's the most courageous thing that he can do in every way. He is going to be whispered about more than Mary's going to be whispered about because of what he's doing here. Because they're going to think this is Joseph's child here. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this. All of this, the angel of the Lord says, took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? It means God with us. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now listen, no one in the sanctuary is going to walk a, a step in the specific shoes that Joseph is wearing in this story. This is a once-in-salvation-history example of the infinite Son of God coming and an adoptive father, Joseph, and a, a biological mother, Mary. It, is, it has been done. And so, so Joseph's story is wholly unique. But what isn't unique about Joseph's story is a calling to obedience even when life doesn't go as you planned for it to go, that we are called to unconditional obedience. What's amazing to me about Joseph is what his response is. Do you see his response? His response is to wake up from the dream, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him to do. Now, in this divine intervention, the angel of the Lord is telling Joseph the source of Mary's pregnancy. Joseph has to overcome his doubts, his suspicions about Mary's infidelity. And so the angel of the Lord says, look, the source of the pregnancy is of the Holy Spirit here. So next week, we're going to focus in on Mary. We'll talk about the virgin birth wholly unique in all of church history here and all of Christian history. We'll talk about that. But it's not just the source of her pregnancy, but the purpose of Jesus that is outlined in in this angelic announcement. Notice it's outlined through the names. The angel of the Lord says, you're going to call him Jesus. Jesus is, is connected to Joshua. Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. Emmanuel, again, Matthew is drawing upon uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Just so everybody is clear, uh, this person who who Mary is carrying now is God with us. I think it's helpful. Boy, it's helpful. But the angel of the Lord puts nothing to our imagination. He he tells us the very purpose of Jesus in, in the womb and for all of his life. That Jesus' purpose is not first and foremost to be a great moral example to inspire all of humanity. Yet he was a moral example that does inspire humanity. Jesus' ultimate purpose is not to be a great teacher to educate all of us as humanity, but yet he was a great teacher. But the primary purpose of Jesus isn't uh, the education that he brings to us, or the example that he brings to us, but it is the salvation that he brings to us. What, what the angel of the Lord is saying is, Joseph, all of humanity has got a problem, and the only solution to that problem is a God-sized solution. 
The infinite Son of God coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying a saving death, being raised on the third day. And for every person who trusts in the hope of Advent, we will have hope now and hope eternally. Right here in the names. Call him Jesus. Call him Emmanuel. Now, you know what's missing? There's a lot there. The source of the pregnancy, the purpose of the pregnancy. But you know what's missing in Matthew chapter 1 is anything from Joseph. Did you notice that? I think we were writing sort of the Christmas narratives now. We would, we would want, of course, to have Joseph speaking into this, right? What did Joseph think about all of this? What were his questions to the angel of the Lord? What was his questions to Mary? We don't have, we don't have dialogue from Joseph in chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel. We don't have dialogue from Joseph when Joseph leads his family into Egypt to escape the genocidal plans of Herod. He's silent. They leave Jesus at the temple. We don't get, we don't get anything out of Joseph. Silent. But, but what we get out of Joseph speaks volumes. Not in his words, but in his actions, a, a life of unconditional obedience. You know why Jesus's, or excuse me, you know why Joseph's words are not there? Because his words didn't matter. There, there was no democracy to what the angel of the Lord was saying. The angel of the Lord wasn't coming to Joseph and saying, hey, look, Joseph, I've picked out five names for your son. How, how about you eliminate one, then I'll eliminate one, and then you eliminate one, and what's left, we'll have this great consensus. None of that. No psychoanalysis of, of Joseph's apprehensions about this. None of it mattered. What mattered in this story is Joseph's unconditional obedience to the sovereign plan of God that is being laid before him. In this moment, Joseph is having to say, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. You said it. I will do it. Now, of course, Joseph could not fully understand the weight of what is being placed upon him in this moment. But in this moment, he wakes up and he does as the Lord commands him to do. And it's instructive. It's instructive for your life. It's instructive for my life. We will talk our way out of obedience to the Lord each and every day if we let ourselves. We, we can come up with a zillion justifications to say to the Lord, I've got a better idea. I've got a better way. I've got a better plan. But what Joseph shows us in his silence is an unconditional yes to the direction of the Lord even when he can't see all of what that's going to look like. I tell you, I've, I've missed this last year. We've been to middle school football games. We've been to high school football games with, with our sons. But a part of the fall has been for years and years to, to go to college football games for years. My father-in-law had season tickets, and so we, we would go down 82 and hit start Vegas and, and go to a lot of Mississippi State home football games. And two, my boys have just grown up with that. Watching the games yesterday and sort of just missing and thinking to myself, I think this is kind of the first year that we haven't been to a football game. And I was thinking about, so I was watching um, uh, the Alabama-Auburn game yesterday, that the last game that we've actually been to was somebody uh, gave us some tickets to an Alabama game. And that was the first time 
I'd ever been to an Alabama home football game. I don't know if y'all know this, but uh, the stadium in Tuscaloosa is a tad bit bigger than the stadium in Start Vegas there. So uh, the difference is about 100,000 to uh, 60,000 there. So it's, a, you know, 30,000, 40,000 uh, difference. And that makes a difference here. I took my boys there. It's about a year ago. And so we get there early, which is great, great time there. And then so we were leaving. We stayed to the end of the game here. And so I don't think it was 100,000 people at the game, but there was a lot of people at the game. And I just remember my youngest son was probably about five years old at this time. So it went last year. It was actually a year before that. And my two oldest, I was like, hey, guys, stay with me shoulder to shoulder here. There's a lot of people that we've got to get through the corridors of the stadium. And we've got to get to the parking lot. And we've got to get from the parking lot. And it'd, it'd be easy for you to get away from me. And to my youngest son, I just looked him in the eyes and I said, you need to hold my hand. Do you understand me? You need to hold my hand. And so I put my hand behind me, and there my younger son Jonathan is holding on to my hand. Now look, I can see a whole lot more than Jonathan can see. I can't see everything, but I can see a whole lot more than he can see. He's a little five, six-year-old, and all he sees is the back of his dad here, and people pressing on him from every angle and every side. There's just this mass of humanity. But I'm telling him, don't let go of my hand. Now a six-year-old wants to let go of your hand. You know this, right? A six-year-old wants to explore. A six-year-old wants to say, Daddy, let me do it. But I had to say to him, my hand's here. Hold on to it. In, in life, we will be in these places where it feels as if the crowd of the world is pressing in on us. And there are all kinds of distractions to let go of the hand of our Heavenly Father who is leading us through the crowd of life. And sometimes those distractions are good things. Sometimes they're, they're sinful things, they're evil things. But either way, the crowd is pressing in on us. And the question to you and the question to me is, is will we hold on to the hand of the Lord, unconditionally following Him, obeying Him, even when we can't see where He's leading us? Even when it feels as if we're going in the wrong direction and I didn't see my life going in this direction whatsoever. But we hold on to his hand. Every time my youngest son would let go, I would always turn back and I would reach back to him. I would always reach back to him as quickly as he let go of my hand. They're pleading with him, hold on to my hand. And note that some of you here I've let go of the hand of a father who loves you and desires to lead you. But know today that his hand has not moved. He's pleading even now. Hold on. Hold on. I will lead you. I will guide you. And you will learn to love and to walk in my ways. When we follow our Heavenly Father, we will follow Him on paths that are familiar, paths of kindness and paths of obedience. Whose hand are you holding this morning? Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning grateful for your word, grateful for the invitation to follow you, to hold on to your hand as you desire to lead us and to guide us. Forgive us, Lord. Because we're all prone to let go, we're all prone to wander, 
We thank you that your hand is even now extended to us to lead us through the crowded rooms of life where we can't see what is before us. You are calling us to hold on, hold to you unconditionally, obeying you, being led by you. That's our heart. That's our heart for those that are holding on tightly. That's our heart this morning for those who have wandered from you. Thank you for your grace. And your hand is extended to all of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.